Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Welcome back to the second episode of a two-part episode with our sister journal, JOSPT Cases. We are here with Dr. Chris Hughes, editor of JOSPT Cases, as well as our three physical therapist authors on the case, Drs. Joseph Darian, Jessica Evaristo, and Justin Lance. If you haven't heard the first episode, we definitely recommend you going, going back and checking that out and then coming back for part two. At this point in our discussion, it's important to re-emphasize that this plan of care started only two weeks after surgery. We've covered the initial first and second phases of care. At this point in rehabilitation, we're about six weeks out from surgery. The authors have largely stayed away from directly challenging the surgical site out of respect for the healing timeframes. They have progressively challenged the muscle groups that were weak as a result of the longstanding cervical radiculopathy between C5 and C7. They have progressed the patient in terms of cardiovascular challenges, initiated soft tissue mobilization around the neck, scar mobilizations, as well as initiated some chest stretching interventions and nerve mobilizations. Regarding the plan of care so far, before we jump into phase three, can you talk about how you dose nerve mobilizations in a patient like this? There isn't a ton of evidence on how to implement these properly, and if you do overdose them, they can certainly flare a patient up. So how do you go about bringing these into the plan of care? I see a ton of patients who come in after surgery and, you know, they're either told to start doing, you know, sliders or flossers. And really their main complaint by the time they come to see me is that they're like, well, I've seen two other therapists and my surgeon says I should be doing this, but I'm having tingling still. I don't think my surgery worked. And we kind of look at them and, and we're like, well, I, I think you're, I think you're just flaring yourself up here. You know, I think it's continuing. You know, maybe the surgery worked, but I think maybe you're getting irritated. In addition to the dosage, it's about just when, when's the time to start those? And in this patient case, you know, we were able to start it in that second phase. This patient was, was largely, you know, not irritable at the time. You know, we weren't flaring up. He did have some tension, you know, some nerve tension there, but, you know, not to the point where, you know, you're going to flare him up and he's, he's done for the day. The dosage has to be so specific to the type of patients, especially since we don't have the type of, of evidence behind it. But I also think really kind of initiating at the proper time based on what we're seeing, at least with our patient and based on what I can say that we see in the clinic, inflammatory phase, probably not the best to start yanking on that nerve, especially since it was just decompressed. Why is it that nerves feel tight? You know, they're like, yeah, it feels like I need to stretch. What's what's the deal with that? Think about when a nerve gets or if if you irritate anything, right? If I bump my elbow, it swells up. Well, think about the nerve now. You're bumping into that nerve and the nerve swells. And since the nerve's going through the muscle, it's going to actually push on those muscles. Muscles are going to feel tighter. And so when you're actually trying to move, you're going to, you're going to feel tight. You're going to feel like you have a tight muscle. And, and it's something that kind of stuck with me. And so I always kind of look at the patients, especially with this patient here, it was how irritable are they and, and what was he actually feeling? And can we, can we alleviate that? Luckily in this case, Really, and I think you can see in, the, in our chart here, we only did it like once or twice. We didn't have to really continue it with this patient very much due to the fact that you know we were able to show him in his low irritability and state that he was able to kind of get that tightness gone and it wasn't affecting the rest of his symptoms. It's not something I usually advocate in that inflammatory phase. I would kind of wait a little bit later. What was your thought process for the third phase? So this is remodeling maturation. Week six to 12 is what we're getting into here. Really, the start for this phase is based off of the healing timeline. So if the patient hopefully is, is getting radiographs, and you know, I'd 
advocate if you're interested in spine, interested in trying to treat these patients to brush up on some of your radio and your imaging. You know, at this point, this is probably they'll get uh, AP and lateral views or x-rays and sometimes flexion extension views to make sure that the space between the vertebrae doesn't change during range of motion. And if things seem stable, there's no, you know, shadowing around the screws and those kinds of things, then there's at least some signs that things are are stable. And then you want to see bone starting to grow between the graft and the adjacent vertebral body. And if you can see a little bit of start of that bone mineralization, that was our sort of go ahead to say, okay, things are starting to, to knit together. And now we can move into actually getting closer to the neck in terms of the manual therapy, the exercise, because now we see that healing is actually taking place here to a, to a decent degree. So the things that we started to add in were manual therapy around the site of the graft and the, the surgery, the fixation. So, you know, the idea here again comes back to biomechanics. If you have a fused segment or a couple of segments, we know one of the common things that can happen afterwards is you get this adjacent segment breakdown, right? Where the ones above and below are going to have to move to make up for the lack of movement at the segments that were now fused. So can you get those segments to move as optimally as possible? I often try to focus on cervicothoracic junction because that tends to be an area where people are hypomobile anyway. So above and below that area, if you can do some directed manual therapy to keep those segments moving hopefully you're reducing the the risk in the future of that those adjacent segments breaking down the manual therapy gets a little more closer to the neck as well as starting to do actually some neck related exercises so doing things just to activate the muscles like nods of the chin in supine without the head coming off the off the plinth through the pillow very light isometrics and just into side bend in different directions again just to sort of activate muscles get things moving again start to wake things up without doing too much active range of motion of the neck or going to any end ranges because we're still trying to sort of semi-protect the area, let's say. When we talk about the fusion of certain levels and then we talk about the compensatory movement patterns at adjacent segments, we also can consider why we started to incorporate some of those more stabilization-focused exercises because conversely, if you have a, a person who potentially feels pretty stiff in their neck after not moving for quite a while at their full range of motion, you could start to get less stability at some of those other segments. Now, keeping in mind that the spine is inherently pretty stable in and of themselves, but just load over time spread across fewer segments, you could potentially get more hypermobility at certain segments or maybe some, you know, anterior or retrolosthesis that could pop up as a result of being fused at those segments and not having adequate muscular stabilization. So that's kind of where we focused on adding some of those craniocervical and lower cervical stabilization exercises, mainly to still operate within those precautions, but also to provide kind of the building blocks for some deeper cervical spine stabilization so that when our patient does get back to his pretty physical job, he at least has a, a good distribution or, or base of that cervical stabilization to prevent any future degeneration at the spine. For the people who don't have access to radiographs, you know, this is to offer guidance, but there's also other stuff that went into our clinical decision-making to advance to that level. Clinical milestones were were met and there was no adverse events. And, and what we mean by that, there's no issues with infection, no issues with increased pain, progressive neurological deficit, 
None of those red flags that are going there. Because again, you have to respect the tissue irritability. Just because the paper says that we move to the next level doesn't mean you automatically move to that level. Making sure to kind of weigh that out with everything that you're seeing. So talking more about the third phase, this is remodeling and maturation phase up through weeks 12. And then there is also the fourth phase, which is continued remodeling and maturation, but just 12 weeks and, and, and up. During the third phase, so, so week six to 12, you do start to bring in sensory motor training for the neck. Some people may not be familiar with what that means. Can you touch on, on what that is and why you brought it into the plan of care? One of my mentors in PT school always would talk like this and say, if you have a sprain of your ankle, you're going to do strengthening, you're going to do mobilization, and then you're probably going to do some kind of proprioceptive coordination type exercises to try to rebuild coordination. Why would it not be the same after a neck injury? And he was talking about sprain, strains, whiplash associated disorder, concussion. There's a lot of ligamentous sort of like nerve, proprioceptive nerve endings in your disc tissue around the muscles around the neck. Things might be affected with this kind of surgery. It's something that we don't tend to look at very much at the neck. There's a ton of work out there, right? And so when we think about, you know, chronic neck pain, Deb Fala, Gwendolyn Joel, you know, James Elliott, there are all these people who are focusing on what happens with chronic neck pain. Yeah, we hear a lot about fatty and poultry and all this other stuff, but we're also finding that the muscles don't fire like how they would. And I think this is a main reason that a lot of people do cranial cervical flexion, right? You know, because we're like, oh, we got to get those deep neck flexors. Well, along with that is also kind of the proprioception, the connection, uh, you know, and the neuromuscular control from their brain. Can they, can they turn on this stuff? Can they actually do it functionally? Do they have the endurance to do this? It was something that at the end of this, we were like, hey, you know, we should check out. Guys had 15 plus years of neck pain. Now he just went through a surgery. And there's, again, limited, limited data on this, but we know with some lumbar surgeries that when, when we're cutting through certain tissues, it actually alters their, their firing pattern and, and their neuromuscular control. So now we're kind of thinking, okay, well, we know we, they, they went right through the neck, right? So, so we should probably check this out a little bit. And uh, thankfully for, the, for this patient, he did a great job and, and we really didn't need to do much with it. Definitely worthwhile checking. And I, and I think I would, I would advise people who are seeing patients like this in the clinic, keep it on your radar, might be a good thing to kind of end with, as, as Joe said, getting through the, the range of motion, strengthening, all the healing's going. Now let's worry about the proprioception. Let's jump into phase four. So again, this is maturation and remodeling, but now we're actually looking at weeks 12 and up. This At this point, you know, the patient was doing pretty well. Symptoms were decreased. I, I don't think they had much tingling at this point anymore. Their strength was coming back. So this is now really what some people might consider the fun part. This is your progressive loading and exercise like you do with anybody getting back to some directed function, right? This person not only wanted to go back to their construction job, but they liked working out with weights. So, you know, let's build them a gym program and make sure it's progressively loading their tissue in a way that they can tolerate. The other thing to kind of think about is that some people are going to start seeing their patients at 12 weeks, depending on the surgeon who refers. And so some people might not see at two weeks, like we did all that stuff. Now, does that mean you have to disregard everything that we did? No, because maybe your patient is flared and they're still irritated. And so maybe you do have to start in an earlier phase, even though it's past 12 weeks. One thing that I think is important to remember, cervical fusions from what we know about them, or actually all types of spine fusions from what we know about them, they fuse all the way up until two years. So just because people think that 12 weeks, oh, bending, lifting, twisting is allowed, 
the fusion's still going for another two, uh, another year or two. So when you kind of think about it in that way, there's plenty of healing that needs to go on and there still needs to be some kind of adequate measure of this. CTs are the gold standard for looking at cervical fusion. So while radiographs, we were able to monitor, CT is actually what tells you if it's fused or not. And so the surgeons likely will do that at, a, at one year mark, also at a two year mark based on the radiation levels. So when you look at that, there a lot can still happen. A lot can change, and and so it was interesting. We had a patient who did have a pseudoarthrosis, but his clinical outcomes actually were still pretty good. And he didn't end up going and having surgery again because it's more of a risk to go back in there to fuse something if he's feeling fine. And so the surgeons actually chose not to operate on him, and and he was fine. Kind of navigated the postoperative landscape, and then this is. As you were saying, Joe, kind of the fun part of progressive loading and making sure to you know, continue to challenge them without flaring them up. Let's just kind of touch on the outcomes real quick. Yeah, we actually discharged the patients, I believe, at around six months and then officially. So what I usually tend to do with a lot of these patients is follow up just like a surgeon would. I'll, I'll see them. And, and as we kind of slowly wean them down. So when he got into the 12-week mark, he was pretty active, followed up with him at 16 weeks. And then at 16 weeks, I said, hey, if you're doing pretty well, we're going to follow up electronically. And if anything occurs after that, feel free to come on in. We'll take a look at you. You can see after six months, we actually didn't have measurements of his neck uh, due to the fact that we were following up electronically. He did He did very well. And, uh, and he was compliant. He actually answered my emails. So I thought that was, that was always a plus. That's awesome. Y'all did a phenomenal phenomenal job with this rehab and the case report. I highly recommend to those who are listening to actually read through the full case. Chris, I wanted to kind of go over to you. Was there anything that you wanted to touch on just wrapping up here? Great insight on the paper. And then along the same lines, you know, we we do have a requirement about patient perspective. And and you freely admitted that you didn't get that that rapport in in the writing. So I'm here to ask you now, give us the flavor. I mean, he's very compliant, did everything you wanted to. Tell me a little bit about the guy's psyche as he went through the rehab and how he ended up and how that played into everything, if you could. He did quite well. I was a little, I, I will be honest, I, I try not to be biased when I look into patient cases when I come in, but I was a little worried with, with seeing the medical history. I was a little worried that things might have poor outcomes or poor prognosis based on what I was seeing. You know, there was a little bit of fear avoidance, I think, at the beginning, but I think that was largely resolved or, or, or decreased due to the fact that he understood that we put together a plan for him and that we were actually trying our best to kind of look and see what are we doing and why are we doing it? I think that's the biggest thing. I commonly see, I think a lot of physical therapists tend to not explain always the why. Why are we doing this? And, and maybe you might know the why in your head, but you're not really telling the patient. And I think when a patient is coming after surgery, they're scared. They're, they're not really sure what's going to happen. And that's oftentimes why I think they uh, say, well, hey, my surgeon told me to do this. I'm trusting them. You know, some of the surgeons do, do explain. Some do not. And so it, it sometimes is now your role. He tended to have a lot of buy-in when he came in because he said, hey, sounds like you guys know what you're doing. It sounds like, hey, you're talking to my surgeon, which is great. I know everybody's on the same page. That's awesome. And so when there were ever times where he started to have a little bit of fear, maybe like that one episode where his neck was a little sore, maybe he overdid it a little bit. We talked him through it and, and we kind of say, hey, this is, this is normal. This is what to expect. And here's what we're going to do about it. And he could see the plan, I think, moving forward. We actually did that with our patient who was... Uh, who had the pseudoarthrosis. And I think that's also why he had good out outcomes as well. He understood why, and he understood that there was an onus on him. Going windsurfing, 
right after your surgery, probably not the best idea, but he accepted that. You know, he, he knew that. I actually saw the patient again for other complaints. He had a decent enough rapport that he wanted to come back and he, and he trusted us uh, in his care. That's great. And, and you can tell you guys must have worked as a team. And so I think that that buy-in is really, really nice perspective from you all. To, you got to get the mental before you get the physical. So really, really congratulations on on pulling it together. The writing showed that that there was a lot of detail and a lot of uh, teamwork on this paper. If we haven't sold anybody yet to read this paper, I understand that spine pain is one of the top causes of global disability right now. And, and I'm going to tell you this, and I, I tell everybody, 90% of spine pain is supposed to be managed conservatively. And so if it's still in the top 10 of disability, that means we have to step up and, and do our job a little bit better. So I think that's going to be about asking more questions and, and, and working together. And that's as a team. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all for, you. for inviting us on here. I just want to ditto Justin and say, like, we got to keep working on trying to find out more about, about how we treat spines and how to, how to do better with it. And we're always open to chatting and collaborating. So if you look us up, you know, I'm happy to answer emails and things. Anyone wants to reach out, any listeners, I'm happy to always chat about spine-related topics. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate the really thoughtful questions and just for the width and the breadth of, of all the topics that you've covered so far in the podcast. So thanks so much for having us on. I want to highly recommend checking out this case. It's great not only to walk through their clinical decision-making, but to see the images associated with the patient and to see the plan of care laid out through the timeline of care. I want to thank Drs. Darian, Evaristo, and Lance, as well as Chris Hughes for all their great work on this case, for sharing their time with all of us here on the podcast. And lastly, as always, I'd like to thank all of you for listening to JOSPT Insights. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.